I need to ask this, if not for my sake, perhaps for your sake. How many of you tonight are single? Raise your hands up high and quickly look around. (laughs) Tonight we want to talk about, from the scripture, singleness. Especially two New Testament scriptures, so that we can all, and I mean all, not just single, but married and single, have the right attitude. You know, there's a lot of things we tolerate in life. One of the things we don't tolerate well is bad attitudes. Be there attitudes of arrogance or attitudes of self-righteousness or, for that matter, self-pity. There's a story of three people who died and they went up to heaven, at least they went to the gate of heaven and there was, of course, Peter. And uh, the first one was a lawyer from California and he said, can I please enter? And Peter said, well, before you do, you have to pass a small test. He said, okay, what is it? He goes, can you spell God? He goes, well, that's easy, G-O-D. Peter said, great, come on in. The next was uh, an oilman from the sovereign country of Texas (laughs) who said to Peter, I'd sure like to get in there. Peter said, well, you can if you can answer one simple question, one little test, spell God. He said, oh, that's a cinch, G-O-D. He said, that's right, come on in. The next was a young, attractive single woman, a female stockbroker from New York City, and she had an attitude. She said, I want in. Peter said, you have to pass a small test first before you can enter. And she responded, she said, oh, come on, I've had a tough all my life. I've had to fight for every promotion I ever had just because I'm a woman. I've had to settle for lower pay for the same position as my male co-workers. I'm continually hassled by a boss who's a male chauvinist pig. So now you're going to give me a hard time too, huh? What's your deal? Peter was visibly shocked by this, but smiling, he said, It's just a little test. Spell Czechoslovakia. <laughs> I like that. That single feminist lawyer had an attitude, and uh, we laugh at her plight. I want to consider some of those attitudes tonight. Attitudes of married Christians toward single ones. They're not always good attitudes. You know, married Christians sometimes look at single Christians as if they're diseased. You're not married? Yet, what's wrong with you? Mark Lee wrote these words, The general society holds that normal people are either married or wish to be. But the single status is an appropriate option to marriage. Singles may have been a greater object of neglect than our families. The church ought to draw singles into the life of the church. Singles should be accepted. All persons live for a time as singles. So it must be a normal state 
Happy married people were once happy single persons. Now, I also think that single sometimes can have the wrong attitude toward singleness and toward married people. I think it's always good to not segregate married from singles. I know we think that's important, but I think it's important to to bring in the mix because there's lots of single people that think the answer to life is marriage. They need to be around a few married people. (laughs) And there's a lot of married people who think, oh, I remember how good it was when I was single. They need to be around some single people. I think it's helpful to have that kind of a mix. So we want to look at these attitudes tonight and see what the Bible has to say and make some summary statements based on that. Let me just give you the facts. Tonight, right now, there are 82 million single adult Americans. 82 million. To put that in a little bit of perspective, the single population in the United States is larger than the total national population of all but 11 nations of the 192 nations in the world. That's a huge group of singles. Six in ten have never been married. One-fourth of our single population is divorced. The remaining one-sixth are widows or widowers. And it's estimated that 10% of American singles will never get married. It's based on statistics. I want you to turn, first of all, to Matthew chapter 19. We're going to get a a biblical, especially a New Testament overview, looking at a couple of passages of single living. It's important to look at the Bible because some, some people really think that God wants everyone to be married. And by golly, they're going to make sure they help God out a little bit. Their favorite verse is, Genesis 2.18, it's not good that man should be alone. Their favorite song is from the Fiddler on the Roof. Matchmaker, matchmaker. They love to do it. They're God's ambassador, they think, to get everybody married. And if you're over 30 and unmarried, they look at you like you are an alien. It's just not tolerated, unfortunately. I found an article I want to read to you to, to give you a little bit of of this notion. It comes from the 1970s from the New York Times book club. They published uh, several books and this was found in one of them. This ultra-conservative misinformed individual writes, quote, the single man in general is disposed to criminality, drugs and violence. He is irresponsible about his debts, alcoholic, accident-prone and venereally diseased. Unless he can marry, he is often destined to a, a hosbian, that is, a selfish, unstable life. That is, to be solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Not necessarily short this way, short-lived. Is it? That was a, an idea that was in print of a single lifestyle. Now, in Matthew 19, we find something from Jesus' own lips that singleness can actually be a gift. I know some of you are thinking, Oh God, I don't want that gift. But let's read together what he says. In chapter 19, let's look at verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And a great, great multitudes followed him and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? 
And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. So it's a theological discussion, first of all, on marriage, marriage and divorce. And Jesus goes back to the beginning and says, here's God's ideal from the beginning, that once you're together, you don't separate. Now they chime in and they rebut him. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted, not commanded, key word, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Now watch this, verse 10. His disciples said to him, If such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. You've got to picture the disciples probably with their mouths agape. I, I can't believe you just said that, Lord. If, if what you said is true, it's better to remain single. Now why'd they say that? Because they grew up in a culture that was immersed in ready divorce. Because of the teaching of the Pharisees, they had so misconstrued the law and all of the Old Testament passages that they made divorce an actual commandment. In some circles, to be regarded as holy as marriage itself. That is, if the guy gets the wrong wife. In fact, listen to this from the Talmud. One rabbi writes, A bad wife is like leprosy to her husband. What is the remedy? Let him divorce her and be cured of his leprosy. Another rabbi in the Talmud said, If a man has a bad wife, it is his religious duty to divorce her. So here's the disciple steeped in that kind of cultural religious thinking. And Jesus says what he said. And they think, man, this is radical. The idea to them of a lifetime commitment between a man and a woman that could not be broken except for death or adultery was like, whoa! It's the same reaction you get, sad to say, even from some Christians today. Is that the case? Till death do us part? You sure that's what you're supposed to say? It just sounds so foreign. So, verse 12, after they said, if that's the case, then it's better not to marry. He said to them, all cannot accept this saying, but only to those to whom it has been given. Given. Key word. For there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake, he who is able to accept it, let him accept it. He calls it a gift. It's a gift. That's the first thing this tells me. This can't be done 
without a gift from God. It's a gift. The word that Jesus used in Greek, didomi, is a word that means to bestow a gift, to bless someone, or to one's advantage. It's a gift. It can't be done by psyching yourself out, by just making a personal commitment, by willpower or sincerity. This is a gift from God. Now, not all, but some single adults live very lonely and frustrated lives because they do everything, it seems, to avoid marriage. They're lonely, they're angry, they're frustrated, they talk about marriage and wanting to be fulfilled, but they avoid marriage. And and there's a number of reasons. Reason number one is they've never found anybody perfect. They regard themselves as perfect, but their standards are impossibly high. The bar is just so high for anybody else who would be into their life to match every little detail that they avoid marriage. They get scared of it. They run from it. Others do it because of selfishness. They don't want to let anybody into their private little world that they have controlled by themselves for a long, long time. So the result is, without a gift from God, disappointment, disillusionment. It's not their gift. Second thing this shows me is that if you have this gift, you'll know it. Now, there's three categories Jesus brings up here. First of all is a congenital deformity. He says there are eunuchs who were born thus from their mother's womb. They're, they're born with underdeveloped sexual capacity. By whatever reason it is, they're born in this world and they're eunuchs by what we would call nature. Some would call nature. The second is referring to, notice, eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. In ancient days, and the Jews were not unfamiliar with this, there were harems, and the harem guards were emasculated. So as to diminish their sexual drive and capacity, and to keep the harem safe. In fact, in pagan religions, emasculation was sometimes done as a form of worship to the pagan gods. Some parents even castrated their male children from birth. The last category is for our consideration tonight. Some have made themselves eunuch for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. This isn't physical now. He's speaking of a voluntary decision. It obviously would refer to somebody who knows they have this gift from God. They're willing to accept it as God's will for their life. They say yes to it. They can move on. The, The next one to look at, and we'll tie it all together in a minute, is 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul is speaking now. Jesus called it a gift. Paul says it can be good because it is God's gift. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1, Now concerning the things of which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife. Let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. 
Do not deprive one another, that is sexually, except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Very practical. But I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. For I wish that all men were even as myself. But each one has his own gift, there it is again, from God. One in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Now back in verse 1, he says, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. That's a Jewish common euphemism for sexual activity. That's all he's saying. He's referring to singles. Let me read that verse to you in the New Living Translation. He says, yes, it is good to live a celibate life. Now notice again the word good. He doesn't say it's weird, it's abnormal, it's not Christian. He says it's good. It's okay. It's fine. He's saying that singleness, as long as it involves celibacy, is a good thing. Now, I can hear the gears churning in some of your little brains. You're saying, but wait a minute. What about Genesis 2, where God said, It is not good that man should be alone. Which is true? Answer, both are true. One is the general rule. The other is the exception. Generally, it's been true historically, generally, people get married have offspring. The race continues, continued for a long time. And companionship can also be derived not just in a marriage relationship, in a church family. That's true. It is not good that man be isolated, be alone. And God did provide marriage in the beginning. And that is good. But Paul says singleness is good too. Now he's not saying it's the only good. He's just saying that It is good. The fact is, most can't do it long term. That's what he says, verse 1. Let let me read it to you again in the New Living Translation. Yes, it's good to live a celibate life, but because there is so much sexual immorality in the Roman pagan world, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. So he's saying, it's good. He's saying, but it's hard. And most people can't pull it off. So, it's good, has to be a gift from God. You'll know if you have the gift. There is temptation that is involved. Now, perhaps, the Jewish Christians in Corinth had been pressuring the single Gentiles. You guys got to get married, man. Because they had such a high standard of this. And the matchmaker was a part of Judaism. So, here's this jingle, uh, jingle, the single Gentile who's jingling, a jingling Gentile. And he or she is pressured by married Jewish Corinthians. Get married. So there's that pressure. Then perhaps it is thought that these single Gentile believers, because of their sexual background and promiscuity before coming to Christ, thought if you're really spiritual, you'll remain celibate forever. It still is present in some circles, unfortunately, that thinking. Paul is saying both of us have gifts that God doles out, and both states 
are good. Paul is saying he himself was gifted with this. Others are too, and it's okay. Now again, in hearing all of this together, you may be saying secretly in your heart, Dear God, please, please, please don't give me this gift. I'll go to the darkest jungles of Africa. I'll go to Borneo. I'll go to Espanola. But please don't make me single for the rest of my life. Well, let me just say to you, relax. Don't worry. You don't have to fret. You're probably not called. Paul knew he was. Paul was fine with it. And some others are as well. A word about Paul's singleness. I just want to bring this up because I get asked questions. Was Paul single? Always. We don't know. You see, on one hand, we know that Paul was a member of the Sanhedrin. To be a voting member of the Sanhedrin, was Acts 26 tells us he did vote with that group. To be a voting member, you had to be two things, a husband and a father. So the question is, where's Paul's wife and kids? They're not mentioned. On the other hand, that rule of the Sanhedrin did not come into force until the end of the first century, beginning of the second century, so that Paul would have been exempt. So, do we know if Paul was married? No. He could have been married maybe when he got saved, his wife left, but we do know that from this point on, when he started writing, after salvation principally, he lived and died as a single man serving the Lord. Now, if you're married, it's time to look at singles differently. Not to help God out. God's God's big enough, without your help, to find a mate for them. I know, but God uses human instruments. Yeah, that's true too, but just relax. And learn to respect and deem as okay and valuable a single person. And if you're single tonight, don't feel like you're a second-class citizen, because you're not. It's good. It's okay. Stay in 1 Corinthians 7. Let's look at some practical principles for single living. Most of them are found here. Four words will help. First of all is calling. You have to be called to this. You know, many in the scripture were single. You think of guys like Paul. There were others, but now Paul could have been married. It's not like Paul was sitting around going, Would you just pray that I get a wife? Man, this is horrible. He could have been married. He chose not to be because he had a sense of calling. He writes in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 5, Don't we have the right to bring a Christian wife along with us as other disciples and the Lord's brothers and Peter do? So evidently, Peter was married, brought his wife along on his journeys. Other apostles were also married, brought their spouses. Paul could have. Paul chose not to get married, not to do this. It was his choice based upon his calling from God. In chapter 7, which we've turned to, verse 17, but God has distributed to each one as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. Now, if you're still thinking, oh no, God wants every Christian married, every person married, let me just tell you the cold, hard facts of American living. This was on a, on a Christian gal's website who had done a lot of research. She says there are 8 million more women than men in the United States. 
It's a lot. There's 8 million more women than men in the United States. And she goes on, more women than men are committed Christians. So to conclude that marriage is God's plan for everyone, ain't going to cut it. 8 million more women than men? More committed women than men in church? Guys, just by the way, if you're single, there's no excuse for you. H.L. Mencken wrote this, It's impossible to believe that the same God who permitted his own son to die as a bachelor regards singleness as an actual sin. Now some are called permanently, and let's just say this, some are called and gifted, but it's not permanently, it's temporarily. We're all called to be single at one point in our lives before marriage, And some may be called after marriage. John Stott is in his 70s, approaching 80. I saw him a couple years ago at Amsterdam 2000. He's a noted theologian, Bible scholar, pastor. Has remained single his whole life as a choice. He writes, The Bible does not indicate that either gift, singleness and marriage, that either gift is always permanent. Just because someone is single now doesn't mean they will always be, and just because somebody is married now doesn't mean they will always be. How can you tell if you're called to this? Well, you can tell if you're called, I would say, by reading 1 Corinthians 7. First of all, you won't burn with passion. Chapter 7 tells us, Verse 9, if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. If your desire for sexual fulfillment is so strong, you can't control it, I don't think you're called to be single. (laughs) At the same time, burning with passion is no excuse for sexual promiscuity. I just couldn't help it. I'm burning burning with passion. I've just got to go out and sow wild oats. No. There is a thing the Bible calls self-control. And guess what? It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's part of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, self-control. So we're all called to be filled with the Spirit, all called to exercise self-control, whether single or married. It is a calling more so than it is an empowerment. Now listen carefully. Stott brought this up. It's a calling more than an empowerment. You know, we get the idea that If we're called to be single, we'll have no desire whatsoever for companionship with the opposite sex. As if you're just sort of supernaturally kept. I don't think so. I still think you're going to have the normal dealings with your nature like everybody else. Any more than when the Bible refers to the married gift, does it talk about an enabling to handle marriage perfectly? If that were the case, there'd be no marriage counseling. But that ain't the case. So it is a calling from God more so than it is a supernaturally empowering where you're not going to feel any desire at all toward anyone. But if you're called, I believe you're going to know it. The second word is contentment. Contentment. Why is that the second word? Because some singles are discontented being single. By the way, Some married couples are discontented being married, so it's not just a single issue. I think discontentment is sort of a problem with all of us. 
but we're dealing with this tonight. If you are a discontented single, you're going to be a discontented spouse. That's just you. And the Bible says we can learn to be content. Philippians 4.11, I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. The word Paul used, by the way, for content is very fascinating. Autarkes. It means self-contained, self-sufficient, satisfied. Contentment. That's what David said in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not what? Want or lack anything. Because I believe God is sovereign, though David didn't understand everything going on around him, he could say, I shall not want. Now, just as we learn to be discontent, and we did learn it, we can learn to be content. And we must learn it. We learn to be discontent from our culture. We've learned discontentment from all the commercials that say you're not a whole person unless you buy that car, that article of clothing, and have that toothpaste. We learn to be discontent by comparing ourselves with our peers, trying to be like them or better than them. And so we must learn contentment. Paul said, I've learned whether I abase or abound to be content. How do you learn it? You learn it by accepting where you're at right now in your life. Accept it. But I don't like it. I'm not saying like it. I'm saying turn to God and tell Him, God, I don't understand it. I've been single longer than I ever liked or thought I would be. But I accept your plan for my life right now, right here. I believe you're sovereign. I believe you're in control. I believe you're going to lead, guide, and direct my life. Contentment is more valuable than companionship. Contentment is more valuable than companionship. Look at 1 Corinthians 7, down at verse 25. Now concerning virgins, now Paul is, you know, this is New King James, and, and Paul, this is 2,000 years ago. He's referring to single people. There was a time when that applied. Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in His mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife that is single? Do not seek a wife. Paul is saying, cherish where you are at. Accept. Learn to be content. Learn the advantages that are yours in the state that you're in. Calling, contentment, the third word is contribution. What are you adding as a single person to the Lord's work, to the kingdom of God and its spread on the earth? Joseph Aldrich wrote a little piece called Love for All Your Worth. And he asked this question. It's a question married, single, any of us should should answer. Listen up. When you come to the end of your life and you have nothing but death to look forward to and nothing but memories to look back upon, what will you need to see to conclude that your life was a success and that you are satisfied? The end of your life, when there's just not much left to go, 
What is it that you need to see to say my life was a success? You can be a success as a married person or as a single person. And Paul makes the point that there are many advantages to being single. You are free to choose for yourself. You don't have to consult with anyone. You have ultimate flexibility, ultimate mobility. Look at verse 28. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such, here's just the basic fact, such will have trouble in the flesh. But I would spare you. The word trouble, philipsis, means to be pressured. Pressured. When you get two lives and press them together, you have a pressure cooker. Anybody who's married will tell you there is a period of adjustment, right? For some people, it lasts forever, unfortunately. There's a period of adjustment. There's different temperaments involved. There's different habits involved. There's emotional baggage involved. There's conflict resolution involved. All of that is greatly intensified when you put two people together. That's what he's saying. Look down at verse 32. But I want you to be without care. Thank you, Paul. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. Single focus. He who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. He has to be. He has responsibilities now. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and spirit, But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper, and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. When you're single, you have freer schedules. You have fewer distractions. You have more time to pursue God without any other responsibilities in life. If you're single tonight, begin now serving the Lord wholeheartedly. You know, I'm not, I don't want to paint with a broom here, but one of the reasons that single people become discontented, married people for that matter, but one of the reasons single people become discontented is they're not serving the Lord. It's all inward focus. It's all what about me? It's what is this going to add to me instead of I'm here to please the Lord. And so they may eventually get married and have temporary joy. But what's going to happen is they'll sink right back into that period and place of discontentment because of their focus. So wherever you're at, if you're single, you have unrestricted freedom. Speaking about contribution... Listen to this. Joseph in the Old Testament, while he was single, became prime minister of Egypt and saved the world from a famine. Oh, he got married, yes. But while he was single, God used him strategically. He had time. Daniel became third ruler of the Babylonian Empire, influenced rulers, three of them in a row, as the nation shifted as a single person. Amos was a prophet who in the 8th century B.C. influenced the entire northern kingdom of Israel. He was single. Elijah, a prophet who stood single-handedly, single-heartedly against the king and queen of Israel 
against a nation who had fallen into idolatry, and he was a single man. John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus Christ, of whom Jesus said, there is not a greater man born of women than John the Baptist. And he was speaking about a single man. There's Paul the Apostle. Greatest missionary the church has ever seen, in my opinion. Great church planner, great theologian. Single. Jesus Christ accomplished salvation for the whole world. All of history points to him. Single. Take it into more modern times. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German pastor, who was hanged for conspiring to kill Adolf Hitler. Single. Great man of God. Rachel Saint, a missionary who went back to the Aka Indians of Ecuador after her husband was killed and ministered there as a single missionary living out her life. The final word I want to use is another C word. It's caution. It's caution. You may be called by God, and you must be called by God if you're going to be single long term. You must be kept by God if you're going to be single short or long term, whether before you're married or after married, if there's a divorce or death of a spouse. You must be kept by God. Here's the caution. Just as it is wrong, as we've already read in the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians 7, just as it is wrong for a married person to act single while being married, it is equally as wrong for a single person, while he or she is single, to act married, to give in to temptation, to follow the lust of the flesh. Singleness, Paul has honestly said, does bring with it temptations, especially in cultures like ancient Rome and cultures like modern America. It's very tempting. God may give you the gift, but you can still expect struggles. So don't freak out if you go, Oh, I'm struggling with this issue. Struggle on, fellow struggler. Because even when you get married, you find that the struggle will continue in different ways. So, it's coming to a place of accepting God's sovereign choice over us. Have you given your life to God? Are you saying, God, you're not doing a good enough job? You're doing a crummy job in handling my life because I don't have this, that, or something else? Or can you tonight say, God, I'm going to let you be God. And I'm going to let you be matchmaker in my life and everyone else's. I close with what Ann Kimmel Anderson, who was single for a long time. I remember reading her books when I was single, and she was. And it was Ann Kimmel, now it's Ann Kimmel Anderson. A poetic expression before she was married of what thousands of Christian singles have discovered. She says, I gave God time and room and space. He worked to create in me his child a more quiet, centered place. A deeper root of peace and trust. He never fails to come through. Jesus, if this is your will, then yes to being single. In my deepest heart, I want to marry. I want to belong to a great man. To know that I am linked to his life and he to mine. 
following Christ and our dreams together. But you know what I need. And so if I never marry, it is yes to you. Will you say yes to God tonight? Whatever lot he would dole out. Let's pray. Lord, you are a giver of gifts. And as we have read, the gifts are not only legitimate, they are good gifts. Because you never give a bad gift. We remember the Lord Jesus said, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more the Father to his. And so, Lord, I pray that we might take out and look at that gift that we have. Some of us are married. Some of us are single. Some of us are discontent in either of those camps. And so, Lord, tonight here before you, honestly, we take and look at that gift one more time. And we say, yes to you, Jesus. If that is your will, if our marriage is going through struggles, then yes to you. If we are single and going through periods of loneliness and pain, yes to you, Lord. And guide our steps. And show us what our gift is, whether it's temporary or permanent. We're just going to trust you, Lord, and believe that you cause all things to work together for good to those who love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand?